0: There was an encouragement that I gave maybe a little over a month ago that I just would like to briefly reiterate, if I could, because some of you afterwards came up and said to me, uh, you know, I appreciate that reminder. That's helpful to me. It, it, uh, it, it kind of prompted me to change course a little bit on that. And the, the encouragement was about congregational singing. Uh, and, and basically what that means is that when we come together together, And the band, by the way, is excellent at thinking consciously about this. But when we come together to worship, we are not being played to. We are not being sort of entertained. Uh, This is not a show. We are here to come together to worship. The band really leads us to the Lord in prayer, uh, in prayer and song, they lead us in that direction towards God. So, it's it's a, an opportunity for us to gather and to sing praises to God. So, I can't sing; I, I'm no good at it. Uh, maybe you're in the same boat, but I still I still give it a shot. And so, let's just let's sing to the Lord together as a people. Let's. Uh, and one of the things I heard recently, uh, there was an interview uh, done by Mark Dever. He's uh, the sort of the leader of Nine Marks Ministry, a pastor in Washington, D.C., he did an interview with Keith Getty. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Keith and Kristen Getty, but the song that's associated with them is uh, In Christ Alone. And that was one of their early songs. And one of the things that they strongly were encouraging is the fact that when we come together as a body to worship, there is at the core this, this vertical dimension that we are worshiping God. But there's also this idea that when we sing, we are singing to one another. And what that means is not that we're performing in front of one another. But what it means is that we are encouraging one another with the truths of the gospel. So as we sing these songs, it's as though we're saying, come on, brother. Come on, sister. Let's, let's believe these great truths that we're singing about this morning. So just another plug there, just another encouragement to... Uh, to sing. Let's sing to the Lord in all of our frailty and imperfection. Not all of us. Some of you can sing, but uh, I guess some of us can't. So today we come to the final petition of the Lord's prayer. And go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to that petition, which is Matthew chapter six, verse 13. Matthew chapter six, verse 13. We are in the Lord's Prayer, which is housed in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is the series that we're currently in, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we find ourselves now, uh, after a number of months working through the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves in chapter 6 on the topic of prayer and specifically on the Lord's Prayer, which runs through these verses. And today we find ourselves at the very last petition in that model Prayer. And so you've been going through this. Maybe uh, the, the hope is that you've either been going through this present or maybe present some and podcast other times. Uh, but as we've been going through this, there are two responses to watch out for that I think would be negative. <clears throat> so there are two ways that you could kind of encounter everything we've talked about, encounter this, this understanding of a model prayer or a guide prayer or, to, or a skeletal prayer prayer structure or whatever, there are two responses that I think would be altogether unhealthy. And maybe you have fallen into one of these, and so maybe today we can, we can sort of address that and pull you back out of that pit. So the first response is that you just go overboard. And what I mean by that particularly is that you let prayer become a tedious process. You let it become a tedious process. What we have here is a model prayer, a guide prayer. And so one of the responses that would be, I think, negative is to be you know, maybe kind of uptight about this whole thing and to throw all your previous praying out the window and to say, okay, now I have to make sure that I say the right things. It's so important that I say these things, and I pray these things, so I gotta make sure that I say the right things. And so the emphasis very much becomes on accuracy in the process. And so that would be one major pitfall. And I think to avoid that, we must go back to that very early idea that we covered. And that is that at the heart of prayer is talking to our Father. That's prayer. So anytime the praying, no matter how structured No matter how accurate, so to speak, no no matter how much it, it, it accords with what we find here, when it ceases to be communion with the Father, when it ceases to be a kind of dialogue, a kind of talking with God as your Abba, it ceases to be prayer. It becomes something else. Maybe it becomes a discipline for you. It becomes something that you're you know, doing maybe as we, as we talked earlier on about to, to impress other people or maybe to find a sense of, of accomplishment or self-righteousness. I pray I pray all the time and I pray rightly. So that's one pitfall for those of us maybe who are inclined towards a tediousness or meticulous attitude towards these sorts of things. But here's the second response that maybe you have found in your own heart, in your own life, in your own praying And it's this, you react against what we find here. You say to yourself that because prayer is communion with Abba, because prayer is talking to God, so you fully endorse everything I just said. You're shaking your head. You're going, amen. But now I want to speak to you. And it's this, that you Find yourself thinking, you know, okay, fine, okay, we got that structure, that you know, order, that that priority, that set of of purposes that that we have laid out for Jesus. From Jesus, there, he does say, pray in this way. But your response is reactive, and you say, no, 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 it's just conversing with God. So I'm just going to continue to kind of speak to God out of the moment, speak to God out of the feelings and the thoughts, and the moment, and the circumstance, and the experience in which you find yourself. And so I'm just going to continue down that road. It's just too tedious. It's too much work. It's too much attentiveness to detail. That that just ruins my prayers. I'm just not going down that road. So maybe that's your response. It's kind of reactive. And for you, one of the things that I would encourage you to consider is that it is hard to pray well. Let me say it this way. With that kind of attitude, that reactive attitude, I think you are running from the fact that prayer is, in fact, work. Have you ever thought about that? You know, I mean, very quickly, we tend to think about prayer as this kind of, we tend to think devotional. There's devotional things, and then there's studious things things. And these two are separate from one another. The life of the sort of feelings and the life of the mind. And we know throughout the history of Christianity that the greatest thinkers have taken the mind and the heart and they have beautifully wed them together. So I would just encourage us to consider the fact that prayer is work. It's labor. It is supposed to be tough, arduous, hard. It is the nature of Prayer, labor, and warfare. Prayer is not just an open Bible, nice hot hot cup of coffee early in the morning, birds chirping. The day and the craziness of it has not taken you by storm yet. And so prayer is just all spontaneous bliss, bliss with no distractions and no impediments. Maybe that's how you think about prayer. It's just easy. It just feels nice, and when it doesn't feel nice and it's not easy, well, something's wrong. I gotta. I, this it's not supposed to be this way. But I want you to hear these words from Scripture about prayer. Colossians four twelve, Paul says this. Epaphras, one of Paul's co-workers in the gospel, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Listen to this. Always. Struggling, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This word struggling, it means fighting. It means contending against. It is either used as an athletic word. And in ancient Greece, we know that athletics were intense. Or it is used as a kind of Spartan Warfare word. So imagine the Athenian athlete or the Spartan soldier. That's what we have in prayer. Romans 15.30, you get the same verb. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul's saying, I'm laboring, I'm striving, I'm fighting, I'm contending, and I want you to come alongside of me and be over here with me, and I want you to fight and contend with me in this praying. So here's the idea that I want you to consider. Here's the image. It is normal for prayer to feel more like storming a beach than strolling through the park. And maybe for you, trying to pray the Lord's Prayer, trying to model your praying after that which Jesus prescribed, trying to sort of hang your thoughts and ideas on this skeletal structure with the priorities and purposes of God. Maybe for you that's arduous and tedious, and it just doesn't feel very comfortable. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Not to say... Because of that, I'm not going to do it. I'm going back to the old way. It seemed to work. But to say, no, 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 no. This is, these are growing pains. This is what it's supposed to feel like. It's supposed to be hard. It is supposed to be hard to follow God's will, even in prayer. And it will be battle. It will be contending. It will be warfare. So those are just a couple of pitfalls, I think, that we could have as we've gone through this series so far. So, so far we've covered five petitions of the Lord's Prayer. There are a total of six, and so far we've looked at five. The first three petitions focus on adoring our Father, adoring Abba and considering his glory. So we get the address, our father in heaven, and then the first three adore him. Our father in heaven, let me just meditate on that for a little while. I've addressed you as our father in heaven, and now I'm just gonna enjoy that. I'm going to think on that. I'm going to pray into that and those realities. So first we got that his attributes will be acknowledged. Hallowed be your name. And secondly, we had that his reign will be realized. Your kingdom come. And then thirdly, in this first section, we get that his purposes will be perfected. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice, entirely focused on God and his glory. Then and only then do we move to the second set of petitions, which, by the way, flow out of God's glorious character and purposes. And one of the ways that we know this this is so beautiful is one of the the, uh, details that I brought up before is that 1 Corinthians 10 31 says this, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God, which which is kind of funny because if you focus on those first three petitions and then you come to give us this day our daily bread, it's almost like you fell off of a cliff You you went from sort of God's glory beholding him to talking about your food and stuff. But then you realize that even in your eating, even in food and stuff, it is done for the glory of God, which tells us there is no mundane. There is no ordinary for the Christian. All things are in fact glorious for the Christian because we are always worshiping a glorious God. God. And so we got these first three petitions. We go to the second three. And as I just indicated, the first is give us this day our daily bread, that our sustenance will be supplied. And the second, that our wrongs will be wiped out. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's what we looked at last week. And today we come to the final and sixth petition that our protection will be provided. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So our protection provided. I went, there are three things that we're going to consider this morning. We're going to read this text in just a moment and pray. But there are three things that we're going to consider as we look at our protection provided. The first one is our fundamental frailty. This is a theme we've come to many times. So I think we have to deal with this in a little more detail here today. Our fundamental frailty. Secondly, our evil enemy, and finally, our conquering confidence. That's what we will look at as we come to this petition. So let me ask you, if you would, to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. We do that because this is God's word. It is the Bible. It is God's holy scripture. It is inspired by God. In the Old Testament, the prophet said, thus says the Lord, and the prophet spoke, And then we get throughout Scripture this notion that there is a holy set of writings and that those writings are not just written by men, but they're written by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That the Scriptures are God-breathed, that they really are distinct from every other book. So we stand for the reading of God's Word. What I want to read today, I want to just go ahead and read through the Lord's Prayer, starting in verse 9, going all the way to the end of verse 15. From evil, And then Jesus gives a little unpacking of last week's petition, the fifth one, with these words. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You can go ahead and be seated. Thank you. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time in his word. I'll say this before I pray, that unless God acts this morning through his word, by his spirit, nothing will happen. Nothing will happen in your heart, nothing will happen in my heart. But what we have confidence in is that two things are true. One, God's word is not fruitless. It's always fruitful. And when it goes out, it does things. And the second thing we can be assured of this morning is that God is particularly present when his people are gathered together. He promises us that in his word. So let's go here now to him in prayer and let's ask for his help. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are enthroned in glory and yet you have condescended to us in Christ Jesus. You have come as our shepherd. You have come as our king. You have come as our refuge and strength, rock, fortress. You have come as our Father. And you have done this through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we praise you for Him. We praise you that all of your glory is found in the face of Christ. We praise you that if we have seen Him, we have seen you as he said to his own disciples while he was on the earth. Father, we thank you that through Christ and in Christ, our hearts are made new so that we might hallow your name in our hearts, that we might treat you as holy. Whereas before we trampled you underfoot, we replaced you with trifles. We replaced you with petty things that we made God's. And Lord, we put ourselves on the throne just as Satan tried to do before the world began. But now, Father, by your grace, your name is hallowed in our hearts, in our inner being, as Paul says, that the deepest part of our person, we live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And for this, Father, we praise you. We praise you that your kingdom has come already and that it is still not yet. That one day you will come in the person of your son and establish your rule over this earth where there will be no more heartache, no more sadness, no more tragedies and accidents, no more death and sorrow, no more sin, no more tempter with his wickedness and his temptation. And so, Father, we pray, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We ask God that you would bring your son that he, you would send your son to this earth to take your people to their inheritance. And Father, we pray that your will would be done in our lives while we breathe and live on this world, that we would be faithful Christians, that we would be devoted to you in all holiness and trust. Father, that your purposes would be worked out specifically in each life, God, that not a single person this morning who is in this room right now would be able to escape the power of your word, but that God all would hear, that all would heed in whatever specific ways you determine. Provide for us, Father. We know we come this morning with many cares and we ask that you will meet our needs. We ask that you will meet our needs financially, meet our needs in terms of our health, meet our needs in our relationships. God, provide the things that we need as we've seen you do it many times over. We praise you for your provisions, for your care for us, our bodies. God, we pray for our souls that you would forgive us of our sin. We know that we are sinners. We know that we have sinned against you even today. And so, Father, would you help us to be cognizant of those things and to confess them and to turn away from them in the power of the Spirit as we hope in the gospel. And, Father, we pray that you will keep us till the end, that you will protect us from this evil one as we'll look at today. Help us, God, today to see the into your word and to be touched by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to our first consideration today, and that is our fundamental frailty. And before we even get into the details of this final petition, before we can get, even get into the, 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 the bulk of what is going on in verse 13, lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. One thing is abundantly clear to us already. As human beings, we are weak and vulnerable. As we saw last week, we are sinful. Forgive us our debts. So we have to recognize before we even get to this petition, we've already meditated upon the fact that we've already sinned. In other words, we, we look into the future. Think of this last petition as kind of looking into the future, whereas the previous petition looks into the past. And so the Christian is meant, as he or she goes through prayer, to look into the past and to confess past Faults, past wrongs, past rebellion, past ignorance and sin to confess all of that before then turning to the future, recognizing that what you face in the past very potentially faces you in the future. It is to recognize your weakness in light of your sinfulness. And as we've seen with each of these final petitions, we see that we're also dependent on God's provision. So each of these petitions is a question to God to provide. We ask God to give us those things that we need for our bodies. So we say, give us this day our daily bread. We ask God to forgive us our sins because only he can forgive. And so we say, God, forgive us our debts. And now we come to God and we ask for his protection. Give us, forgive us, and now lead us, not but deliver us. And then finally, before we even kind of get into the passage... As we saw a couple of weeks ago, we are to pray this prayer daily. And the reason we know that is because one of the petitions says daily. And that tells us, because we know these petitions aren't isolated, that this is one whole prayer that we are meant to pray daily to the, to the Lord. That we don't only need for God to provide for our physical needs daily, we also need God to provide for the forgiveness and cleansing of sin daily. And we also need God to provide protection for us daily. So even before we get into this petition, if we just consider where we were at last week, If we just consider the daily need, which we covered two weeks ago, and if we just consider this whole idea of asking God, give us, forgive us, lead us, if we just enter into this passage, we already see that we have to confront the fact that we are intrinsically weak, that we are fundamentally frail. And this reality of human weakness becomes even clearer. As we do a quick flyover. So we enter into the passage, and before we even get into the details, we see our weakness from the context of the passage. And then as we sort of leap up into the air and we fly over the passage, we get that much more clearer the fact that we are weak. First, this petition tells us that we are prone to fall into temptation. Lead us not into temptation implies that we are prone towards that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are like sheep, and God saves us. He forgives us of our iniquity. He gives us new hearts, but here's the thing. We still carry around that old nature, that old sinful nature, and in that sinful nature is this tendency to just sort of wander off into sin. Foolishness is to wander off of the path. We see that repeatedly throughout the book of Proverbs. So we are prone to fall into temptation. James 1.14 says that we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Now, just a quick note on this. We think about Satan kind of coming in, grabbing hold of our heart, and just kind of moving us around from thing to thing. He just sort of moves us out of virtue into vice, and then he lets go and maybe comes back later and moves us back over into vice. That's not how it works. Satan has all the ingredients that he needs inside of you. All he has to do is work on that. He works up from that. It is your own desires, your own lusts that lead you into sin. Satan is the tempter. He's not the one who creates those lusts. Those come from our own sinful, fallen hearts. So we see that we are prone to fall into temptation. Secondly, we see that we are in need of deliverance. Deliver us from evil. This is the idea of rescue or salvation. I've often talked with one of our other elders, Mike Walpole, about this, talking about the fact that, you know, is is it it the image of a person out on the sea drowning and God throws them a, uh, a raft or something that they can hold on to? No, that's not the case at all. It's the fact that we are dead in our sins. We are, it's not that God gives us a little booster, a little assistance. He kind of comes alongside of us and helps us up on the, on the edge and then we can kind of get into the boat ourselves. No, it's not that at all. We are dead in our sins and it's God who comes along and he delivers us, he rescues us, he picks us up. We're we're down in the water, dead, drowned and God lifts us up out of that and he brings life into us and that's what he does throughout our lives, in every area of our lives. He's the deliverer, he's the rescuer. We need that, we need to be delivered and thirdly, we see our weakness in the fact that we cannot stand up against evil in and of ourselves. If we could, then we would not be asking God to deliver us from the evil one. We wouldn't be asking that question. And that reminds us of the fact that nor can we provide for ourselves at the end of the day. We work We go out and we plan and we save and we build. We do all of these things and God has placed within us that common grace as human beings and he has has made us in his own image. But at the end of the day, apart from God's giftings, whether it is in creation or in sustaining, whatever the case, that apart from God's giftings, there's no provision for us. and Apart from God's grace, there's no salvation. And apart from God's strength, there is no protection from the evil one. And so we see all of this. Once again, as we fly over, as we enter the passage, and as we fly over the passage, we see our fundamental frailty. We see our weakness at the gate. We see our weakness from the air. But now let's dig down a little more into the details of this passage. Let's see what is found in the specifics of this petition. And the first question that we should ask is what's going on here with the words, lead us not into Temptation. It sounds kind of strange. In fact, I was recently talking with someone whom I met at a coffee shop about this very question. That this is a difficult passage. We come to it and we, and we respond in a way that sort of, you know, we're scratching our heads. We're, we're kind of appalled even. God, lead us not into temptation. That of all the things that Jesus would ask us to pray, that this would be one of them and that, that we would even need to pray that. God, lead us not into temptation temptation, it just kind of runs against what we think about God. And it should at first glance because the scripture says this, lead us not, oh, I'm sorry, the scripture says in James 1 verse 13, let no one say, now listen, this is very important, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say that. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So hear this loud and clear. Never in your life, when you've sinned, were you moved to do that by God. Never in your life, when you have sinned, were you tempted or enticed in any way by God. And we know that intuitively because of this truth. To sin is to disobey God. So it's logically impossible, right? I mean, just, just logically impossible. Because to, to say that God led us to sin, to say that God tempted us to sin, is to actually say that we did what God led us to do. We did not disobey him. We did not go against him. But sin, by its very nature, is to miss his mark. It is to fall by the side. It is to transgress his law. It is to rebel against him. It is to disobey his authority. So it cannot be, it cannot be that God tempts us. And although there is much that could be said on this point, especially since the word temptation and test or trial are the same word in Greek, and this is one of the reasons that that it becomes so difficult, is when you read in the Greek New Testament the word trial or testing, it's the exact same word as the word for temptation, so sometimes it's difficult, even in James, for example, it starts out the first chapter and he says, uh, rejoice when you experience very, various kinds of trials. And then we get later to this word, temptation. It's the same word. We have to discern from the context that one is speaking of being tested or refined and one is speaking of temptation. And in fact, the two ideas are very closely aligned with one another. So there's much that could be said on this point. I don't in any way pretend to exhaust that here. But what I want to do is point you to two other passages in Matthew that shed light on what I think is meant in this petition. So the first of those is Matthew chapter four, verse one. We're all, most of us, are, you're probably familiar with this passage. Matthew four, one, right before the Sermon on the Mount, it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So notice that. There are two players there, two characters. There is the spirit, the spirit of God. That's God, the spirit of God, who does a kind of leading, leading up into the wilderness. And then there is the devil who does the tempting, as it says, to be tempted by the The devil. So what does this tell us? Just this very basic beginning to answer this question. I think that we can say this, that this tells us that God can lead us into testing situations. We know what's going on in Matthew 4. Jesus is like Israel. He is the true Israel in a sense. So what happened with the, the children of Israel? They were led into the wilderness and there they failed the test. In the wilderness, in the desert, they, they chose to listen to Satan. They chose not to obey God. They chose to sin. And so Christ comes, true Israel, he goes into the wilderness, he is tested, and he passes that test with flying colors. He, as the obedient Israelite, the, the seed of Abraham, true Israel, he passes the test perfectly. So as I said, I think this tells us that God can lead us into testing situations as he did Jesus, but that it is the devil who tempts us to sin, never God. So you have Abraham, Genesis 22, verse 1, and God tested Abraham. Told him to go up into the mountain and sacrifice his son. And Abraham was put in that testing situation and God brought him out as righteous and obedient and God stopped him from sacrificing his son. God never commanded child sacrifice. That was a pagan thing. But God came and gave him that test and it was through that test that that Abraham's character was demonstrated and refined. But at any point in in that testing, Satan could have tempted Abraham and was undoubtedly tempting Abraham. But he prevailed through the test. The same could be said of Job, that Job was tested by God, but never tempted to sin, never enticed, never led off to sin by God. So that's one passage that we need to keep in our minds as we see these words lead us not into temptation. We need to remember Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness in Matthew 4.1. The second passage I want to point you to is Matthew 26.41. And Jesus says this there. Watch and pray. He's talking to his disciples. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's he's weeping, he's, he's, he is calling out to God as he's about to endure the cross. And he says to his disciples, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Did you catch that? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So I think if we're going to understand what's going on here, we have to take these two passages together. And what this latter passage, Matthew 26, tells us is that in light of what we read in Matthew 4, God may test us and refine us in a number of ways in this life, but that it should always be our desire not to enter into temptation never to to have to go up against Satan in warfare, in battle. It should be our desire, very much as Jesus expresses to his disciple, that we not even enter into a state of being tempted. It would be better if we did not enter into that state of being tempted. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are praying, as John MacArthur says, Lord, don't ever lead us into a trial that will present such a temptation that we will not be able to resist it. And I like the way John Stott paraphrases this. He says, do not allow us so to be led into temptation that it overwhelms us. And here is the frightening implication for us, I think. That if it were not for God's preemptive power in our lives, That Satan could grab hold of us even today in such a way, he could tempt any one of us in such a way that we would in fact fall away and denounce God and turn to sin. Any of us, not a single one of us can stand against him. If God took away his preemptive, shielding, guarding, protective power right now, we would all fall Satan knows just the thing to do to you. He knows just the thing to do to me. He knows exactly how to tempt and how to move in our circumstances and in our lives in such a way that we are crushed under the weight of that temptation. No one, no saint of God who has ever lived is exempt from that truth. No one would crush us overwhelm us and most certainly calls us to fall away. So we do not only need to be be protected in and through temptation. I want you to, this is the big thing that we need to see here. It is not just that we ask God, God, be with me through this fiery trial. Be with me through this moment of temptation. Get me through when I'm tempted. No, it's far, it's far more than that. Given our fundamental frailty, given our vulnerability and our weakness, it is far more than that. We are calling out to God and we're saying, God, don't just protect me in temptation and through temptation. Protect me from temptation. I am so weak and frail. I will tumble over. You know, there's... Um, stories throughout the history of the church of Christians who have suffered martyrdom. And one story that I recently came across was of two men, this was during the Protestant Reformation period, two men who were being persecuted and who were put in prison and they were going to face the fire. They were going to be burned alive because of their belief and profession, proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So they were going to be burned alive at the stake. And in this prison, this little, this little cell, there were two men. One of those men was very confident. And he told everybody, he would say, everybody, you sounded so, so bold for Christ. You know, I, w- I will stand against those flames. I am ready. And he even made, made statements about sort of waiting for that day as a bridegroom waits for his bride, waiting that he might conquer victoriously for his Savior, for his Lord. The other man in the cell with him was a a frail little man who was so deeply afraid of the flames that they would overtake him in torture and pain and that he would recant and that he would deny his Lord. And so he cried and and he wept and he was weak and he prayed for God's strength and he just did not have it. And the man who was in there with him who was so confident, rebuked him. Be courageous. Be brave. You can do this. You're a follower of Christ. And then they went to the stake. At the sight of the stake, the one who was so confident denied Christ. He denied the truth of the gospel. He recanted just at the mere sight of what was about to happen to him. But the other man, know, all of his frailty, in all of his weakness, he endured it with great joy because it was Christ in him, not him. And he knew that in and of himself, he was nothing. He was weakness, frailty, emptiness, poverty, nothing, dust. And so he endured Not in his own strength for his Lord in all of his weakness and in all of Christ's power. That is the difference between the person who recognizes this weakness and the person who does not recognize it. So let me ask you this question. Has pride blinded you to your weakness? Do you really believe this stuff? Some of us are kind of the beat down types. Maybe we sort of spend a lot of time dwelling on our weakness, but some of us don't. And maybe this morning you need to be reminded of the fact that you are weak, that you are vulnerable, that you are frail, and that Satan could chew you up and spit you out in an instant. You would be nothing. Nothing. You need the Lord. Has your pride blinded you from your great need daily, hour by hour? Let me ask another question this way. Do you seek to avoid temptation? Now think about this. Sometimes we tend to think, okay, in that moment of temptation, God will be with me. But here's the more fundamental question that we have to ask based on what we've seen so far. Do we avoid temptation? Do we say to ourselves, lead us not into temptation and therefore, as an implication of that, say to ourselves, I will strive to avoid any situation in which my weaknesses could be used against me by Satan to topple me over. See, sometimes we so boldly and foolishly and stupidly walk into all kinds of situations that, that present all measure of temptations against us. And then we fall and we go, oh God, why? Why did I sin? Forgive me, I don't want to do that again. And then we do it again, and then we do it again, and we do it again. It's because we keep walking into the same stuff. We keep walking into the same pit. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to help us to avoid those temptations that we might not enter into temptation in the first place. So, we are to pray in that way. And nowhere does our weakness come more into focus than than when we consider what we're up against. And that leads us to our evil enemy. These last two points are a little shorter, but I want us to consider, secondly, our evil enemy. We pray that God will deliver us from evil, or probably better translated, the evil one. We know that all moral evil begins with him. All moral evil begins with Satan. Satan means adversary or enemy. Diabolos, devil. That is who he is. He is the accuser. He is the enemy. He is a liar. He is a murderer. He's the original liar, the original murderer. He's the original sinner. And he has been tempting humanity since the beginning. And this is why Jesus prays. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays this way, I do not ask God the Father that you keep them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That is the prayer of Jesus as he's about to leave and go to heaven. He says, Father, keep my disciples from the evil one. We are greatly in need of protection from him. And the seriousness of the threat can be seen from a number of angles. I want you to consider the great threat that we face in the person of Satan. By the way, he's a person, not a force. He's a person with an intellect. His nature. I want you to consider first his nature. He's a fallen angel who wanted to be God. You can go and read of Satan's fall in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, Ezekiel 28: 12 to 15, there you can read of Satan's fall from heaven. He is described there, in that passage as being beautiful, being blameless, being wise. one of the greatest of God's angels. He was a, a cherub. Remember at the end of, the, guard, at the, end of the, the fall story in Genesis chapter 3, what does God place at the garden with a flaming sword so that no one may enter? The cherubim are one of God's great, powerful angels. And Satan is called a cherub. He's called beautiful, blameless, and wise. And then it says, till unrighteousness was found in you. You were this until unrighteousness was found in you. Imagine Michael. Imagine Gabriel, Satan or Lucifer was all of those things, loved God, saw God's glory and loved God's glory until unrighteousness was found in him. He wanted himself to be God. 1 Timothy 3, 6 says that the condemnation which the devil fell into was that of pride. That he began to exalt himself above God. He began to see in himself the qualities which would sort of uh, lead to some worship. I should be getting some worship here. Look how great I am. And in fact, we know that a number of the angels in heaven actually did just that. They honored him in this way. This is unfathomable to us and it raises all kinds of questions which I'm not even going to begin to try to answer here. But many angels from heaven fell, and God cast them out of his heaven. He threw Satan and his demons out of heaven. But what we need to remember is this. Satan did not lose his angelic nature. Every bit of power that you see in the Bible of angels, when they come and people fall on their faces in terror, The angel who kills, I think, over 180,000 Assyrian soldiers outside of the walls of Jerusalem. One angel. 180,000 soldiers. Gone. One angel. Satan retains that nature even now. His rule, 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's called the God of this world. His hands are so involved in all the sin that we see around us that it is, it is nearly impossible to, to detach what evil we see in the world and him. He rules it. He perva- it's pervasive with him. He is called the prince of the power of the air, the one who works in the sons of disobedience. His grip on this world is tight, tight. We see his rule. We also see his craftiness. 2 Corinthians 11:14. 14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I want to ask you this. How many things in your life right now do you think are light and they're not? Things in your life right now you look at and you see brightness. You see splendor. You see of God, light. But in fact, it's Satan. It's the devil's schemes, it's his devices. He disguises himself as an angel of light and he comes to us and he tempts us in ways that we can't, even, we can't even understand, we can't even see. And here's the thing, if you're not praying this prayer, if you're not praying this petition, undoubtedly right now in your life, in my life, there are many things, many deceptions which we don't even know about. Many things that we call light that are darkness, darkness and from him. He is crafty. He's been doing this for a long time with many different personalities. There's nothing unique or special about us. Just more humans. More humans. His mission, John 10 10 to steal, kill, and destroy. 2 Corinthians 4.4, to blind the minds of unbelievers from the glory of the gospel. That's his mission. He hates the gospel because it liberates people from his bondage over them. He hates the gospel and he wants to destroy people. His ferocity. I've read these words before, but they need to always be repeated. 1 Peter 5.8, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here's what we need to know with such great seriousness today. You know, we, we play the Christian life. It becomes a silly thing. With great seriousness, we need to know this, that his nature, his rule, His craftiness, his mission, and his ferocity are all directed towards you, towards me. All of that, all of that power and that wickedness and that hatred and that malice and that desire to destroy and rip apart is directed towards your family, this church, all of us. Even now, even now. Always. Do you believe in him? It's weird to ask someone, Do you believe in the devil? Don't even like asking the question. We say, Do you believe in God? And by that, we mean so much more than just mental assent. But do you believe that the devil is real? If you don't, or if you don't give any attention to the truth of it, you're greatly deceived. There is a great book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Actually, talking about this recently with Will Daney, uh, one, of, one, of the, one of our folks here. And it's a very interesting book. It's one written from a demon by the name of Screwtape. And he writes this to his nephew, Wormwood. And he's like, kind of, he's a learning, he's a demon in training. And it is kind of, it's kind of comic in one respect when you first come to it because it's sort of, you know, you've got these demons talking. But what Screwtape writes to Wormwood is intriguing. It is C.S. Lewis's take on how we're tempted. And he's he's trying to understand it, and wrap his mind around it. And so he he has this constant letter dialogue between Screwtape and Wormwood saying, look, I know what's going on with this human. You need to kind of do this a little differently and do that and, and, and cross paths here and get them to think on this and, and just work on them in these specific ways and one of the ways that he tells wormwood that he needs to work in people's minds is to get them to not believe in the existence of devils and demons primitive stuff how can any person who who gets on the internet and flies in a plane believe in the devil how is that even possible we could be so foolish, so, so silly, so backwards. And that is precisely what Satan wants us to think, that he does not exist. He wants us to think that it all can be boiled down to materialistic causes, that he's not real, that there are no demons, that he doesn't work in our hearts and minds, that he's not the ruler of this world. And all the while, God's word is telling us, oh, he is real. And not only is he real, he is very, very, very active. In every person's life, he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not God. He's a creature. Yet, he has a host of demonic beings that do his bidding every day. So do you believe in him? I also want to ask you this. Do you believe that he's at work in the little things, not just the big things? He's at work In every glance. He's at work in every bit of wasted time. He's at work in every unkind, cold, passive word. He's at work in the tiny things because the tiny things become big things in his economy. He knows that. And he's got your whole life to work on you. Do you believe that he is real? But although we are incredibly weak and vulnerable, and although our enemy is incredibly strong and evil, we can face all temptation with a conquering confidence. And that's where I want to finish up this morning. Our conquering confidence. Our confidence cannot be in ourselves. This goes without saying. We've already made this point abundantly clear. There is nothing here, there's nothing here. But poverty, lack, inability, emptiness, weakness, there's nothing but that in you and nothing but that in me. There is poverty of spirit and there must be, there's emptiness. Our confidence is in Christ, the conqueror. He alone can be our strength. I love the way that one commentator puts it regarding Christ. He says, the disciple is so weak that he is little match for the devil. And if you don't believe that, if you don't know that, Satan laughs at you. The disciple is so weak that he is little match for the devil. And listen to this he needs a savior, not an assistant. Praise God, Christ is not my assistant. He needs a hero, not a helper, not just a little petty helper. He needs a champion. And Christ is that. He is a champion. He's the champion. And he revealed this when he was tempted there in the wilderness by, by Satan. What did Jesus do? He stood in the midst of temptation. He did not fall over. And it is him alone who can do that. And so Christ in us is the means by which we stand against this great foe. We in ourselves will topple over every time. Self-reliance is a joke to the devil. We need Christ. He's the champion. He's the conqueror. Not only is he the conqueror who's already defeated Satan. He defeated Satan in his incarnation in the wilderness. And he can defeat Satan in you every single day. Every single day. And he sits above Satan. He has been enthroned over every principality, over every ruler. One day, the Lord Jesus Christ will take Satan. He doesn't have to put his hands on him. He's the word. He will, remember in Revelation, he comes with a sword out of his mouth. That, not a literal sword. I wouldn't take it that way. But what it says is this. He comes with his voice. When he speaks, it happens. He'll massacre the armies of Antichrist with a word. He needs not a sword or a chariot or a weapon of any kind. And one day with a word, he will throw this devil into the lake of fire. And every day with a word, he can throw the devil off of you and me every single day. Our confidence is in Christ. Our confidence is in our Father's protection. I wanna go back to this idea. Our Father protects us not only in the battle, he protects us from the battle. There are some battles which we should never face. And we face them, I think, often because we do not pray like Jesus taught us. We pray, we ask him, Lord, don't bring me into that battle. I will crumble, and Jesus protects us from those battles. I wanna make a brief note here, just two things that I wanna point out about how Jesus protects us, how the Father protects us as we go through this life from, from temptation. We know those words, Psalm 119, some of you do. You have hidden your word in my heart, or I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You cannot say enough from the pulpit that we should read our Bibles. You can't say it enough. It's not a cliche. It's not just something a preacher says because he doesn't have anything else to say. It is truth because without it, we have no sword. That is what the Bible is called in Ephesians 6. We have the full armor of God we are to put on and the offensive weapon is the sword. It is the word of God. It's what Jesus Christ himself used when he was tempted. Without the word in your heart and in your mind just floating around in there, there is no hope against the devil. He will topple us every time. Begin to devour the word, or he will devour you. And then, secondly, remember what Jesus says to his disciples watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. We take vacations. Sometimes we take vacation from prayer. Maybe we have a little prayer habit Monday through Friday, but on the weekends, kind of take it off. Take off a little time from work, take off a little time from prayer. Jesus says, no. Be vigilant and watchful in prayer that you may not enter into temptation. If you are not vigilant and watchful in prayer, you will enter into temptation and Satan will have you and that's exactly what happened to Jesus' disciples. In the garden, the the soldiers came and they fled like cowards and Peter stood there before a young girl, not even someone with power And and he said, no, I don't know this Jesus and he cursed, he swore, I don't know this Jesus because he did not watch And pray, he entered into temptation and he fell. Thank God that when that happens, the Lord Jesus is gracious. Just as we read in John 21, he was gracious to Peter and he will be gracious to us. Nonetheless, we pray, heavenly Abba, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray.